podcast we have conversations with people who've been fucked up by their faith and we explore how they found hope, healing, reconciliation and forgiveness in or out of their faith tradition. My guest today is John McCulloch who I am very excited to have on the podcast. John is an award-winning poet indeed and creative writing tutor. I um, met John when I was studying creative writing writing at the University of Brighton and subsequently uh, did his advanced poetry workshop at New Writing South and just yeah really learned an awful lot about the art and craft of poetry by just being in his company. So welcome John, it's really good to see you. Thank you for having me, it's great to be here. Yeah, I'm excited. So I um, begin every podcast by reading a poem um, or a, a, a blessing or a, and, and today I've actually chosen one of yours and it was the very first poem of yours that I read um, and I was blown away and, and it's not just to flatter you, I genuinely, genuinely was by this poem. And this poem is from your second collection, Spacecraft, um, and it's Some Days I'm Visited by a Church of Rain. So apologies if I read it in a way that you don't like, but here we are. Some days I'm visited by a church of rain. The building wanders around the sky, then falls on top of me. Clouds are its ceiling. Droplets the choir. Inside, stones achieve the ardent shades of stained glass. Jagged pines melt and glitter. The broken air remembers and I listen in the steam and hiss of psalms for voices I have lost. I dream of striding down the pavement's dazzling aisles for years. Then I meet the clean smell left behind, recall how only through forgetting can the church arrive. And I come back to my small garden, its chalky earth young, forgiven. Hmm. You did a great job of reading that poem. <laughs> a wonderful poem. <laughs> and um, yeah, I mean, I think very apt also for the, the conversation that we're about to have. Sure, um, yeah. Yes. Which is, John, how have you been fucked up by your faith? Well, to begin in a small and easy way, I think I'm going to springboard off that poem, I suppose. I think that today I still use in my writing quite a lot of um, religious imagery and terminology because my who I am has been shaped at a very deep level by um, faith and by my experiences of different uh, religious institutions and also um, spirituality. And one of the things that drew me to you as a person is your own um, practice of uh, interfaith stuff and for me I think so much of spirituality goes beyond kind of words and set categories and um, it's a very human thing for me about the relationship between the individual and the universe and I think that that view of spirituality is very different to the view I had of it when I was much younger so when I was growing up um, I went to Sunday school every Sunday. I was in the uh, the church choir. I did choir practice every week and sang at <laughs> weddings and things. And I was terrible. I was uh, just one of those kind of cherub-faced little boys who makes paper airplanes out of the sheets. <laughs> I was supposed to be a soprano, but I don't actually know if I actually <laughs> found any notes. But yeah, I think I was there for mostly decorative. I'm effect. sure you looked the part. Yes, that was yeah. it. I had blonde hair in those days. It's kind of oh. a tiny blonde basin of hair. <laughs> <laughs> With my little white and purple stuff going on. So was that and, Church, Church um, of England, presumably? Your yes, it was. Yeah. It was a church called uh, St Matthew's in Watford, which is where I grew up. Yeah. And um, that was where, yeah, I went to church and uh, Sunday school 
and where yeah the choir practice was and uh, that was the main kind of hub of uh christianity for me when i was young obviously in those days you also had um a christian assembly um at all the schools i went to whether they were infant junior senior etc it was assumed that everyone would be um partaking in uh, the singing of um particular hymns right, and yeah. so yeah i think the world has changed a lot um since um i grew up this is in the 80s really the 1980s in england and i suspect things are probably slightly different now but um yeah that was um the fabric of my childhood and so um i think that um that had both positive and negative effects in terms of my later development hmm so would you so Mike the, the first question that has come into my mind was were, were your family particularly churchy or was it just was it one of these cultural things that that, that a lot of people just kind of fall into because it's what you do I think it's a very perceptive question. Actually, my parents were not particularly churchy and I half suspect that they just wanted to get rid of me and my brother <laughs> for as much time as possible so they could, you know, do some fun adult stuff and um, we would just not be in the um, house for a bit. They needed a break. And yeah, I can sympathize with any parent needing a break so that people can do things other than, you know, feeding children mashed potato or whatever. And um, yeah, so my parents, neither of them, I don't even know if, um either of them are particularly um believers um but it was just the, the done thing every child was christened uh weddings always took place in you know or, or usually took place in a, some kind of religious setting or had some kind of link and so it was mostly a cultural thing yeah and um yeah a useful way <laughs> of <laughs> getting rid of children for a little bit of time yes and and still is to a certain extent oh I think there's much more of an, an expectation that parents will accompany their children to the various activities rather than just leave them um, to be babysat <laughs> for all sorts of very good safeguarding reasons given the some of the history of the church um, so was a point was there a point at which you thought hmm I'm not sure about this god malarkey I think that as I grew older, so most of my church going was when I was uh, kind of between about seven and maybe about 11 or so. Mm -hmm. And as I um, grew older, I think I naturally um, drifted away from that, partly just because of general cultural reasons. So among my peer group at school, um, I think that, yeah, most kids weren't church goers in my area and um it was just it wasn't a particularly passionate decision that I will no longer go to church and I will no longer um you know focus on that as an area it was just kind of the norm amongst uh, my age group and we still had uh, religious education at school and um so yeah and, and the secondary school i think they still had uh, an element of um christianity to the uh, school assemblies so i was still um in touch with it um more vaguely and i think i probably would have identified um as an agnostic um when i was at school and, and still do to what i in some to some extent i still do i think but yeah i think i probably would have identified more as an agnostic um, up until about the age of 18, 19 or so, when I was still living in Watford, uh, you know, with my parents and finishing off my A-levels. Yeah. I'm going to come to the Watford thing because it's something that comes up a lot in your, in your sort of public rhetoric and kind of seeps through your poetry as well, doesn't it? Is the fact that you have, you grew up in a particular kind of working class with a particular working class background and in an, in an area that had a particular culture and you you know you're wearing a adidas for example and it's it you you make fun of it in some ways i'm conscious of that but there's there's a there's a seam that's that's running under that which is which has a bit more kind of bite to it does that does that make sense yeah i think that's fair yeah. I think that um, just the way that I was born, I feel like I was 
a centre of many contradictions and things which were hard to reconcile that yeah. were just had been given to me. So um, I grew up in a very working class uh, household. My mum was constantly drilling it into me. You're, you're working class and don't you ever forget because you're going to have to work twice as hard to get anywhere. You know, no matter what you do, you're going to have to like um, put your back into it. You have to not be sniffy about getting your hands dirty and doing, you know, lots of hours of labour, etc. And that was just something that was part of, you know, growing up. I didn't really question that. Like it wasn't until secondary school that I even, I think, met. Uh, middle-class children whose parents um, listened to Radio 4 and um, had all these different um, holidays that were abroad. Like, we never went abroad on our holidays. We went to the same place in Devon for 12 years in a row. That was just what we did. And we had, and food-wise, we always had, like, bindus and fish fingers and, yeah, yeah. mashed potato and peas and things. Every, pasta without sauce was a big favourite with my mum. Okay. <laughs> but, yeah, adding into that, as... I got to secondary school I kind of realized that I was very different to um everyone around me and I went to a very rough school my school was like near the bottom of the league table when it was published it was a sink school that accepted um pupils who'd been expelled from all the other schools yeah. in the area and so I had all that going on um vaguely religious background and then um when puberty struck I realized that I was only really sexually drawn to um men to other boys at that stage really but yeah uh, to the people of the male gender and that was really hard to reconcile with um, both working class male culture around me and with um, elements of my faith at that point yeah. and I found it definitely a real struggle during my teenage years to um, fit together the various pieces of who I was mm. it just seemed um, almost impossible to solve and um, when I've finally came out to myself even though I've only ever been attracted to men for about 13 or so it wasn't until the age of 19 that I decided that I was um this was who I was and it wasn't a yeah. phase up until then I told myself it's a phase just ignore what's going on with your body keep your mind on other pursuits academic pursuits you know noble yeah. pursuits then I came out to myself and my first this is very much an inclination of my religious upbringing, I suppose, in that sense. My first thought was, I'm going to have to become a monk. <laughs> There's uh -huh. no way that I can live a life as a sexually active um, gay man. And so my first thought, I mean, and it's very much kind of hideously white messiah. I'm going to become a monk and I'm going to do um, good charitable deeds somewhere, yeah. you know, far flung. Uh, slightly colonialist aspect to that fantasy I think that had been drilled into me the only option was to become um, you know this kind of um, asexual presence who was going to help people to atone for this you know this kind of terrible stuff that was going you know on inside me and that I'd accepted now wasn't going to go away. Mm. Mm. It's really interesting because I mean obviously this subject comes up a lot in these discussions because a lot of the people that have been fucked up by their faith are generally queer um, because a lot of aspects of Christianity are not particularly affirming. <laughs> and um, so, it, yes, it comes up a lot. But really interesting was there's still um, an expression of Christianity, most in the sort of evangelical wing of the church, that still has that expectation of people that they describe as same-sex attracted i'm using quote marks for the listeners um that that yes you can be that but you must be celibate that's you know that's the only way that you'll be accepted so it's you know it's still very current um and perhaps not surprising that you had that um impulse you know so what what how did you find your way out of that I think it took a long time. Um, I mean, I've always been a voracious reader. I read um, constantly in my spare time, not just poetry, but all kinds of books. I remember reading a really um, interesting feminist book on that covered partly religion uh, called The Sadian Woman by mm -hmm. Angela Carter, yeah. um, which was a tome which explored um, some texts by an author who was deemed to be uh, irretrievably patriarchal in his rhetoric, the Marquis de Sade, mm -hmm. who we get the term sadism and masochism from. 
that Angela Carter explored um, two of his key works alongside um, various other writings. And um, I don't know what it was. I think it's just that it arrived at a particular point in my life and she was just exploring representations of uh, women, essentially, um, and how they had been shaped by um, different teachings and why was the notion of um, the Marquis de Sade so frightening for people and, you know, the idea that um, he has uh, two different protagonists and one is kind of a sadist and one is a masochist and why is the idea that a woman might be um, sexually, you know, in charge of herself and um, sexually powerful, why is that so frightening? Why is the the masochistic model, the one that society is pushing us towards. And I don't know what it was. It was just arrived at the right moment in my life. And it did make me question more, I think, uh, the way that ideology was embedded in religious institutions and how it doesn't come down innocently from God and how all these religious texts, to some extent, um, are embedded in particular ideologies of gender, of sexuality, of all other kind of socio-historical things going on in the context when they were created. They couldn't possibly, the writers couldn't have had knowledge of what society was going to be like in thousands of years' time. All they had was, you know, what existed at the time, which was um, a proto-feminist world and a proto, you know, a, a, sorry, a, a pre-feminist world, a pre-gay um, world, a, pre, a world that was, you know, couldn't really conceive of um, the world and the categories in which we surround ourselves today. Yeah. And in fact, I've read some sort of theological commentaries that describe some of what was offered in the Old Testament as actually progressive for its time. You know, it was actually an attempt to make things better <laughs> by, you know, creating laws and rules around certain behaviours, you know. Um, which and I always find it interesting how um, evangelicals really focus in on the um, stuff in Leviticus, which they, you know, um, feel supports homophobia. But the whole thing of like um, the ban on indoor toilets and, you know, and not eating lobster on sand. There's a <laughs> whole bunch of other stuff. That yeah, that just gets forgotten. Yeah. That's not important. <laughs> the only bit that we really need to focus on is the gay people. <laughs> Sodomites. One of the most liberating things for me was to discover that there is a whole field of theology, which is queer theology, you know, queering the Bible, you know, and and um, reading um, certain aspects of the Bible that are clearly have a queer message, you know, but particularly from that sort of liberationist perspective and just really kind of. Uh, yeah, it was wonderful, a wonderful discovery, not that I discovered it, but. <laughs> um, but that's so true I mean yeah. I went on to become a Renaissance scholar for a few years and so many of the great religious poems of that period by John Donne and the gang mm -hmm. have rhetoric that is extremely homoerotic and if you didn't know it was a religious poem Absolutely. and you just showed it to a modern reader they might assume it's a gay love poem you know kind of yes. batter my heart and uh, all this stuff about being entered by God and being ravaged by God and being ravished by God yes yes Absolutely. So, yeah. Um, where was I going to go next? I had a question in my mind, but I was distracted by queer theology. <laughs> Something that I was, I was kind of had in my mind to um, talk to you about, and it kind of it, it's moving along the, 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 the sort of queer lines as well, was we had, I remember we had a conversation once about spirituality and gin and in general and the ways in which there's sort of a cultural expectation that gay people queer people are kind of not spiritual or you know don't have yeah. a legitimate spiritual expression um so i'm very interested to kind of hear hear your thoughts around that yeah it's i think because some of the most prominent voices um when Gendersby people are growing up um, in terms of homophobic voices are often, for me growing up, it was George Carey, the former Archbishop of Canterbury. Yeah. He was one of the most prominent voices in terms of offering his rather negative opinions of homosexuality. And I think that because of that, and people, and not just gay people, but other people, straight people seeing that, there's this kind of expectation that it would be an impossible contradiction for um, a queer person to have, not only a religious life, but a spiritual life. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I think it's such a shame in that there are so many uh, queer people I know 
who I've had conversations with about uh, spiritual matters. And um, it's kind of ridiculous. It's just, a, for me, spirituality is about the relationship between the self and the universe. And there are so many different ways of um, describing God and describing the universe. And um, for me, I think um, the universe is God to a certain extent. And in terms of what most people understand by God, and so um, I've always, um, yeah, there has always been lodged inside of me, I think, that kind of belief. And certainly I've always known that I have a soul. And, um, and when I was very ill, I think it was in 2003, um, I, I'm going to later on read a poem called Soulcraft from Rex Pepper Birds. And there's a line in it, I think it's the first line actually, um, there is a light at the centre of my body yeah. And that sentence was, I'd had a breakdown and I was, uh, I couldn't speak. Um, I had a nervous breakdown and I was incapable of speech in 2003 during my PhD. I had to be looked after by my parents for a month. And I was I was mostly, as well as not being able to speak, I couldn't move very much. So I spent most of the time like curled in an armchair or lying in bed. And I just remember um, repeating to myself, even though I was only able to form like um, half thoughts, I couldn't think properly for a long time. I remember repeating to myself that there is a light at the center of my body. And I just, yeah, I don't need, there, there are always these things, you know, scientists, if you look up the word soul on Wikipedia, you'll find, um, you know, all these references to hundreds of scientists that have conclusively proved there's no such thing because they've weighed the body before and after death and what have you. And well, that's all very well for you, but you know, I know how I understand the world and um, I know that I do have a soul and I'm gonna write about it. And because it's a part of how I, of who I am and um, how I see the world. And I think there's a big cultural difference between uh, the UK, for instance, and America. Yeah. In America, it would not be at all unusual to write about um, the soul and um, spiritual matters compared to the UK, where people, where people are often still very shy about this and find it a bit embarrassing, um, yeah. you know, the very concept of uh, talking about having a soul or your spiritual needs. But strangely, you, you took me where exactly what I was going to ask you next, which is about um exactly that the ways in which um i mean writing and poetry it seems in particular is very shaped by you know our culture and what is acceptable to write about from a spiritual perspective is very shaped by it too and i still contend <laughs> that my writing was marked down because i always write about spirituality right i think it's it's there's a there's a certain I don't know if it's if it's snobbery but there's certainly a bit of a block in British writing towards writing that's overtly spiritual whereas in, as you say in America you know it it's in so many other countries too it really yeah. is a particularly um English problem or I don't know if it's if British is the right word or not. But when you look at um, so many wonderful writers, uh, Emily Dickinson and Carson, yeah. so many writers really important to me um, mm -hmm. who do um, explore spiritual questions and you know the meaning of the word God and um, the meaning of faith and of um, belief and uh, the formation of the identity being something that you know has a spiritual component to it. Mm. Yeah. Um, you've certainly introduced me to some poets and kind of affirmed my joy of some poets who are very much writing from, you know, from that sort of deep well of exploration of what soul is, what God is, you know, and also in particular that way of meeting God in everyday things. And I, I think that's the joy of poetry for me, is that you take what's everyday and turn it into something godlike? I focus mostly on um, Christian poets, but there are loads of amazing Zen Buddhist poets oh, like absolutely. Chase Twitchell, uh, Jane Hirschfield, 
yeah. um, who do very particular things to language which are um, you know, rooted in their faith, like Jane Hirschfield, she will often do something you're told never to do in a creative writing yes. um, class, which is to repeat the same word incessantly, to empty it out of meaning so that it becomes, you know, so that you, and it's, it's, but it's tied to that whole Zen thing of turning over an object um, as a, the same object, you know, um, as a route to um, infinity and to things, you know, beyond yes. the, you know, the idea that you don't have to have relentless variation, you can achieve enlightenment through um, having a very humble small focus on you know a spoon or cup or what have you mm -hmm. and um, you can you know you can enter the infinite through any one of a number of uh, gateways and yeah. I think for what for me my faith nowadays um, it is kind of I suppose um, elements of uh, Christianity elements of Zen Buddhism um, but certainly I know that I have a soul and um, and certainly I really enjoy myself uh, reading um, a lot of particularly American and Canadian poets who, for whom um, spiritual matters are really a really important part of their poetry. Yeah. So how does how does your spirituality emerge in your poetry? I think partly um, just through choice of subject matter in terms of, yeah, I often write quite explicitly about um, souls and I have written about my own autobiographical experiences of um, the church, but also, um, as you say, um, I write poems that have, I, I, I can't stop writing about um, churches and prayer and things, these yeah. big words, I think, um, are, are part of me, they are um, extremely meaningful, and um, and the older I get, yeah, the more I use them, and the more I am not persuaded by atheism, and not persuaded by categories that confine and separate us mm. I think that we are mm. all part of the same organism um, I think that we are all part of the universe and yes I have to get pegged as a hippie I think <laughs> whenever, I whenever I talk about, about matters I get pegged as a hippie I think <laughs> <laughs> but see what the, the way that you dress kind of takes the edge off of that doesn't it I think yes it does yeah <laughs> I have got some tie-dye I maybe should have but yeah I have got some tie-dye t-shirts <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I do wear a lot of Adidas. Adidas hippie, yeah, that's me. <laughs> so I'm curious about, I'm going to come back to that same question about, because it is, it is something that, that I noticed repeated in your, in your, um, just in your sort of personal way of engaging with out with the you know on social media with the out, outward world is is it's not I wouldn't call it self-deprecation because it isn't that I think you are you are you have a very positive attitude towards yourself but there is a there's almost a sense that you're kind of gently making fun of yourself in order to ease yourself into conversation and I don't know if I've got that quite right but it, it, I think for me, it partly comes from a class thing in that I was, I don't know, I'm always thinking, how can doors be opened? How can equality be increased? How can yeah. people come together? And um, and I hate, I think that when you are an author, there is, and people will give you prizes and things, um, it'd be very easy to spiral up your own backside and become full of... Um, self-importance because you're given a certain license to when people introduce me they always mention like you know the different awards and things and um ultimately I'm still a human being and ultimately I recognize I've been very fortunate and um and that I know, I know loads of really talented writers who are equally as interesting as I am who deserve to have um the same level of success in my own view but I think it's just growing up yeah my mum would certainly like Whenever I had like ideas above my station, she would call me little Lord Fauntleroy because oh, neither of my parents read very much. Okay. She would describe me in those terms and she would just be like, um, yeah, not impressed if I was um, <laughs> yeah, trying to, um, yeah, not get, get out of doing some kind of like physical task um, through an appeal to books or what have you. <laughs> and you well, in Glasgow, you would say you were getting too big for yourself. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. 
yeah, just and it's the quality I've, I the quality I dislike most in other people. I think, or one of them, is anyone who's a bully and anyone who is snooty, who's looking down the nose at other people. Um, I think it's just a class thing. I just yeah, it just always puts my back up if I get the sense that someone is uh, placing themselves at a high level and kind of like uh, I don't know. It's just an emotional thing. Sometimes you feel it. And um, yeah, for me, I think self-deprecation, I suppose, um, I want to connect with people and yeah. I don't want to have, if someone gives me a license to do, you know, to be a big head, I don't want, I want to rip up that license and I want to connect, I suppose. But it's, it is, you know, it is very easy, isn't it? Certainly in some of the circles in which you move. So, you know, writing being one of them poetry in particular literature and academia where uh, you know there there is uh like it or not a certain degree of snobbery um and so i can understand kind of reacting against that <laughs> and yeah we all go to the toilet well, well you know what I mean? that is very true that's very true yeah <laughs> certain things that which we all do and which you know Anyway, <laughs> I've taken us down a toilet humor avenue there. <laughs> but there's something also about, I mean, and we did touch on it as well, about the subjects that we are given license to write about. And, you know, I, I sort of remember talking in, when, when you do a, an Emmy in creative writing, they make you do a module in publishing, which... I did everything I possibly could to get out of because it depressed me. And the, way, the reason it depressed me is because they were telling you all the ways in which you would probably not be published. Um, you know, I had that when I was starting out in the 90s. Um, yeah. I mean, at the moment, I'm judging a competition for the UK Poetry Society and I'm employed by them. But in the late 90s, it was a very different organisation. When I was a creative writing student, in the late 90s, I think it was 1998, I was given some guidelines uh, by a tutor, which were from the Poetry Society. And they said, never send out work to magazines that lacks a broad appeal that is not universal. Yeah. E.g. gay and lesbian poetry, yeah. because to write about um, gay things was to immediately be minority interest only. Nobody straight could possibly be interested in the life of a gay person. So you must do all you can to erase all of that from your poetry and um, and that had a big effect on me at the time I I think one of the reasons why Rex Pippa Birds was my breakthrough book was because it was the first book where I embraced the side of me that is manic that is vulnerable that is spiritual there were so many deep truths about myself that I thought weren't palatable to the poetry world because of you know what I'd been told directly by the Poetry Society and others mm -hmm. that I kind of worked to avoid and I tried to emulate more uh, straight male writers. I tried to be more cold, more detached, none of this embarrassing stuff about souls, none of this embarrassing stuff about being queer and like being a bit, you know, excited sometimes and being a bit clumsy sometimes, being a bit, you know, awkward sometimes. Um, embracing all of that, I think, uh, made my poetry much better. It made it much more emotional. And for me, the test of whether a poem works is whether I feel it in my body, whether I get goosebumps, whether it moves me. For mm. me, I write using rhythm and imagery and plays on sound because it's all because these are all techniques that appeal to the non-rational side of the brain that appeal to this side of the brain that is emotional that is spiritual that's the reason for me to write a poet to write a poem otherwise you may as well if you want to appeal to the rational side of the brain then you know write it out as prose and as logic and you know remove those musical aspects because that's why poetry works as it does it relies on those techniques because for me I mean, there are many different types of poetry, but the type that I'm most interested in reading and writing myself, um, that that type um, is fundamentally about emotion. Yeah, absolutely. And I, ha as you know, I've got a particular interest in the the use of poetry in a spiritual context. So not not necessarily the the poetry being about spirituality per se, but actually being used as a tool. So you know, I work mm. in hospice I work with people who are dying and I use poetry a lot to say the things that can't be said um and yeah. for me that's something that poetry does does good poetry does well is it speaks into the things that are difficult to say 
and get absolutely yeah. i think yeah. one of the great things about poetry it doesn't have to decide between a and b it can hold a and b together and that's the reality where we live most of the time is you know living in contradictions having mixed feelings about things clarifying that simplifying that so that one is right and one is wrong and you know one is focused on i think that slightly can betray the reality of human experience yes yes exactly but also i think poetry gives gives me license as a as a minister to say things that if I used if I used just my own voice would sound like platitudes or sound really trite or you know mm. poetry provides this legitimization of a language you know um another type of language it's on a it's on a different a different level of expression um that I think is just so important well hmm I agree. Mm. And I'm just, I'm wondering how you feel about the ways in which, <laughs> I'm, I'm not quite sure how to frame this question. And well, I'm gonna just, I'll say it as it's coming to me, the ways in which poetry is ruined for people. Does that- You mean in I terms of- yeah, so like I speak to a lot of people that that when the word poetry is mentioned, they're like, you know, they panic <laughs> because they think. And I think that that comes from a particular educational context often yeah. where by um, a poem is viewed as a test and you have to, um, it's, can you guess the correct meaning by solving the riddle? by unlocking the puzzle and deriving at the correct conclusion that the poet wanted you to get. Yeah. Whereas most of my favourite poems, there'll be there will still be things in them that are mysterious to me. But for me, um, I have what Keats called negative capability. I enjoy inhabiting uncertainties and mysteries. Yeah. And um, that's a sort of, the same with music. Music isn't a logical medium. It doesn't clear things up. It, you know, it expresses them and you, you know, you can step into that space and be surrounded by music and feel emotions without having to write an essay afterwards about what the correct meaning of this song was. You know, it either gets you in your body, it either inspires you and lifts you or it doesn't. And I think that, yeah, it can be fatal to um, teach someone poetry through the medium of dissection and um you know if you if you love a um if you love dogs then you don't necessarily want to become a vivisectionist and unpack no. them and find out how they work no. you want to run around with a dog in a field you yeah. want to cuddle a dog you want <laughs> you know that dog to be your best friend it's the same with poems i think that analysis can really kill poems because it's not what they were written for they were written to stir emotion rather than to provide an opportunity for rational analysis and logic. And it's interesting, the different place in different cultures of poetry. I think that, um, again, <laughs> I'm just bashing Britain here, but like I think there is a particularly um, British problem around uh, poems being seen as tests and markers of intelligence as to whether you've ascertained the correct meaning. Mm. And also for the poet, of the ways in which you have you very very cleverly put the words together you know <laughs> um yeah the, the i mean of course there is a craft there is there is a, a you know i wouldn't necessarily say skill but certainly a craft that you can hone and learn and and get mm. better at um but mostly it's it's emerging I, I wrote a poem once about how you know how poetry just i could have vomit it up you know Sometimes it just goes, and then I go through periods of absolute nothing, nada, you know. And those are the that's how poetry is for me. I'm either vomiting it up or or it's nothing at all. And I know that. Oh, same, same. Yeah. I will often have a whole year of not writing a single poem, mm -hmm. and then I will have a year or two of manic creativity, and I'll write hundreds of poems. And th that can't be programmed in advance. No. It's just either there, there's either water in the well or there is not. You can do little things like, you know, reading 
constantly you know is a vital part of my creative practice constantly putting new things in the pot like I'm always trying to read writers who I've not read before I don't like to circle the same writers too much I quite like um, discovering writers who are new to me and who reshape the way that I see the world I get really excited by writers who are very different to me because then I have the opportunity to you know learn and change and develop yeah absolutely and you I don't you can't re- write if you don't read that's for absolute certain <laughs> yes and I know it's something that you said and say a lot that you know you yeah, reading there poetry. For, yeah there is a place for poetry as catharsis as therapy as pure self-expression unmediated but if you're going to want to hand your poems over to other people and if you want people to be you know interested and excited by poems who don't know you if you're writing for strangers then you have to take into account how does this come across to someone who doesn't know me and my life and isn't invested in me and my life you have to um, adjust the language you have to take into account how it's going to be received by someone and, and how you can give that stranger the most intense emotional reaction possible through your approach to um, techniques to structure phrasing etc yeah and th- there's something though about because poetry is comes from the soul <laughs> you know it does emerge in this way you know in a very sometimes in a very kind of raw and emotive way and sometimes in a way which is cathartic but sometimes quite almost traumatic um it's it's a hugely vulnerable process isn't it to to uh, allow that that expression of your soul to appear on a page and then to hand it over to someone else to say hmm Absolutely. And I first started writing poetry for therapy for cathartic reasons. And then I turned away from that for a bit whilst I was learning more um, skills and beginning to write for an outsider. And it's only been more recently that I've been more uh, confessional in quotation marks with my poetry um, because it is scary when I read, because I do a lot of performing. And when I perform a poem that's um, a confessional piece, I do find it more of a challenge. I do feel, obviously the audience aren't gonna necessarily know which of my pieces are the most autobiographically inspired, but I know, and when I know that something comes from a very deep place and that I'm revealing, you know, something of myself, I, um, yeah, I have to really um, steal myself and I have to, those um, performances feel especially intense for me and I do think about them and how I'm going to come across and you know what sort of audience is this are they going to connect with this are they going to say yeah boo get off you know or whatever yeah I wanted to ask you I wanted to sort of cycle back to um you know allowing your writing to become a bit more uh, vulnerable or you to allow yourself to write about your vulnerabilities and you mentioned that you know in your past you had this period of shutdown where you couldn't move or speak and if it's okay to ask you about I mean it's not it's it's not a condition that's unfamiliar to me as a as an autistic person and that kind of shutdown is not it it happens when my nervous system can gets overloaded so it's not something that's unfamiliar to me but I'm just wondering how you exercise (laughs) self-care in your life now how do you cope with that that potential tendency to become overloaded from a spiritual I do find um I do find um spiritual practices like mindfulness meditation and the like um very useful to me I find anything that gets me to relax um such as uh sometimes I've used hypnotherapy recordings I use recordings of rain sounds is yeah. rain is very as yeah as we read that poem at the, you read that poem at the start beautifully and that captures for me the essentially calming and spiritual nature of rain mm. likewise i frequently encounter problems with overstimulation like yeah. whenever i go to a city that i'm absolutely excited by and, and really happy to be there unfortunately i often like crash like the next day and um, because my brain has been overloaded by stimuli so yeah. whenever i go to tokyo or edinburgh or something you know with all the people handing out flyers and there's all there's something over there and there's something over there and there's something up there and oh, no, isn't it great 
it's really annoying because I'm so happy and joyful to be there. But yeah, it can lead to um, unfortunate um, health consequences. And I need, I've been trying to learn to be um, quiet and to inhabit silence. I'm naturally quite a, a manic, fast talking person mm-hmm. who likes to do lots of things. And I've, yeah, I've, you know, had to learn again and again. Um, how to learn to inhabit silence and to, um, that, you know, like anybody, I, my body sometimes needs uh, downtime as much as I want to do something, you know, I'm really excited by it. It's not that I don't, I think sometimes one of the frustrating things I find is that people often misunderstand that and they think that, oh, he's, you know, he's really unhappy to be here. He hates Tokyo, he hates Edinburgh and it, nothing could be um, further from the truth. Um, it's just one of those, one of those things. You just need downtime. You need quiet space. And that's certainly how yeah. I manage to cope with the world nowadays is if I'm going to be in a noisy, stimulating place, then I've got to factor in time out from it um, in order to survive. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But it's fine. Hmm. Thank you. There was a question on my mind, which has gone out of my mind. Um, yeah, it was what you said about finding, um, allowing yourself periods of silence and stillness. And it, it just kind of, there was something that came into my mind about how that echoes poetry, you know, and how the, the, the points of stillness and silence in poetry are mm. equally as important as the words. Yeah, this is a big part of my teaching. Um, a lot of people think, a lot of people focus on sound and rhythm and poetry, and that's certainly, you know, a key part of it. For me, silence is as much a part of a poem as the sound and the rhythm. So the bits between the beats, um, there's a small silence at the end of each line, there's a longer silence between stanzas, there's a mm-hmm. silence at the end of the poem when the readers reach the last word and it's just kind of echoing in their mind. And there's also silence in other places, so, you know, between words, uh, there's white space on each side of the poem and that um white space is silence and it can be used for me to make emotional content emotional phrasing spiritual phrasing resonate and how the reader experiences different silences can be used for me to um, evoke um, different kinds of feeling for me uh, learning to handle silence in different ways is just as important as learning how to use sound in different ways there are many types of silence many species of silence and it can have lots of different effects absolutely i think that was one of the biggest learnings that i took from from your teaching in in terms of how you use a space on the page visually and and in terms of how the the poem sounds as well and there's something just just echoes the spirituality element of a poem as well that the spaciousness of it allows that space for the 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 feeling of the poem to move through mm. on that note we've been speaking for nearly an hour <laughs> can't believe it oh gosh i know um, <laughs> on that note i ask my guests to share a poem and i know you're going to share one of yours which i'm excited about so yeah what are you going to share with us I'm going to share a poem called Soulcraft, which is about my own experience of um, having a soul. As I said, before this book, I didn't really um, explore um, spiritual matters in a kind of head-on way, Um, but part of writing from who I am and writing about vulnerability for me had to involve um, writing about um, this experience of the self's relationship to the universe, and um, my own private knowledge that I have a soul, no matter what those scientists say. (laughs) Soulcraft. It's true, there is a light at the center of my body. If I could, I would lift aside a curtain of this flesh and demonstrate. But for now, it is my private neon. It is closest to the air at certain moments, like when buttercups repair a morning's jagged edge. Other times, a flock of days descends and my soul flickers, goes to ground. Without light, I'm all membrane. Each part becomes a gate. 
I pour across each margin and nothing has enough hands to catch me. My teeth knocking so fast, I daren't hold any piece of myself near in case I start a banquet. I'm only eased by accident. On the drenched path, I pick up snails and transport them to safer earth, then feel a stirring. I watch as rain streams from lopped back elms, my face teeming with water and, hello stranger, my soul glides to my surface, like it too belongs there, like a bright fish rising to feed. Mm. Thank you. I love I that. That was the right. <laughs> that was wonderful. And um, obviously we'll we'll link to the book in the show notes because um this is the book uh, Reckless Paper Birds, just for the audience, is the book that won the Hawthornden Prize last year. Is that right? Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I did say that John was an award-winning poet and he's blushing, but he did win the Hawthornden Prize and it's a big deal. So <laughs> you're allowed to you're allowed to crow about that. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, John, it's been absolutely wonderful. Thank you very, very much for coming on. It's just such a treat. Thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you. You've been listening to Fucked Up by Faith with me, Jude Mills. Our music is by David Goodall and you can find the podcast on Spotify and all major podcast channels. If you would like to take part in the podcast or you know someone who would be an awesome guest, please do get in touch. You can do that via my website, judemills.com forward slash podcast and I look forward to hearing from you. Go well.